you know, I have wanted to make this one for ages and ages. So, this is not essential, but it's something really fun that I came up with. And maybe you might take something away from the idea. Ultimately, I would like for you to build your own. Something simple and stylish, professional and effective. I'm going to ramble a little more in this episode than I normally would. Since there isn't really a a defined central idea here. And seeing all these things laid out is, well, it's evoking a lot of strong memories. Positive memories. One of the things that's amazing about being a hypnotist, amongst my many, many other kink skills, well, first of all, short divergence. So there's this adorable concept that I find in kink where people use things like spatulas in a kitchen as a kink object to spank somebody with. And they call these things pervertibles. And it's basically a dual use object, something you can use for something that has a normal function, and then you can adapt it in a kink context. Sort of like how you can use a piece of rope to string up a tent or string up a cute girl. And I've always found this idea of pervertibles really kind of adorable because it implies that they're capable of making a conscious distinction between an object that can be used for kink but isn't and an object that is designed to be used for kink. And I always found that really cute because I've never made that distinction. I've never looked at rope and thought, ooh, I would have to pervert the intended use of this rope if I was to tie somebody. It felt to me as though it was perfectly natural and obvious and clear that you could tie somebody with it and that it would be fun. So I always had a little giggle whenever there was this guy that I knew once um, and he had a big collection of basically random objects and he would trot this out in front of cute girls that were new to the scene, do his little song and dance and it was just really, really cute and they would ooh and ah and they'd be very mystified by the idea that you could hit somebody with a wooden spoon just as easily as you could stir your soup with it. And I always found that just so adorable. (laughs) Uh, So. This is a collection of useful tools. Another useful distinction, sidebar again, that's just how my mind works when I'm rambling, Gay men often referred to their sex objects as tools or the act of play as work. They were working someone over, working someone from top to bottom, working them hard, working them easily today, this sort of thing. It was tools and work, which I suspect probably comes from the the masculine influence in that sphere. But 
when it comes to kink, you tend to see the term play used a little bit more often. And I think they have different connotations, very different connotations. And I was definitely, at first, uh, although I am straight, definitely more in the tools and work category of objects. This is a tool as a function. That comes from my construction background. I think I could hold a hammer before I learned to walk. But I've often thought of these as tools. And I mention this now because becoming too trapped in the idea, the mindset of this is a tool and this is work, have definitely limited me in the past in the amount of personal joy that I was able to take in what I was doing. Because in my mind, what I was doing was work. And work must be pursued with a deadly seriousness. And as I think about it now, it's probably because a lot of the work in my teenage years was working at heights. And there's a very real possibility of people dying or being quite seriously injured if you make a mistake or you don't take the work seriously. So the seriousness kind of bled through from there. I caution you against this attitude when it comes to play that doesn't carry a significant risk of harm. Um, because I have found it difficult to shake off that connotation of this is work, these are tools, this is a job I am doing now. And that has really quite severely limited my ability to personally enjoy a lot of the experiences that I've taken part in. So when you, when you play with your partner, I would, I would suggest from the benefit of my experience that you select an attitude that is approximately 70% play and 30% work to gain the best of both worlds. I don't like how so many submissives are very glib about the things that they do, as though the things that they do were not serious, as though the things that they do not have do don't have a deeper meaning. I have always struggled when it comes to accepting the excuses that people make in kink. I've watched women bounce around from one flogging to the next flogging to the next flogging to the next flogging from one rope scene to the next three or four or seven that they will do that night. And it seems to me that either there is something critical that I'm missing here or they really just aren't taking it seriously. So... I think some degree of seriousness is essential in order to maximize the intensity of the experience. But I also think that it's important to remember that it is supposed to be fun as well for both of you. At least most of the time. I would say almost all of the time. Sometimes there is work to be done. And sometimes there's play. But most of the time, I would say 80 to 90% of the time, should be play. I'm trying to help you avoid the mistakes that I've made in the past. So to summarize that, you can think of your objects as tools or toys. You can think of what you do as work or play, but the trap of thinking of it all as work is that it will limit how much fun you can have. The trap of thinking of it as play will limit the maximal intensity, emotional and physical and sexual, that it's possible for you to achieve. Because 
it won't be taken as seriously by you, which means you won't assign it the same degree of importance. I believe the ideal balance is about 20% I am a skilled practitioner who knows exactly what they're doing and 80% I have designed all of this in advance and know my own skills and capabilities well enough that I can relax into my unconscious and allow the experience to flow forth from me between the two of us as we meet each other in this experience that we are sharing. Now, every single item in this photograph that will accompany this uh, this audio, and I thought, well, you know, a photograph kind of makes sense because it's the simplest way to describe all of this, so I'll put all of that in the resources folder as per normal, but on the off chance that you're somewhere that you can't look at the photograph, I will describe all of this in much more detail. So, one of the amazing things about being a hypnotist is wherever I go, I don't actually need to carry anything with me. Uh, there are lots of different props that you can use. There are lots of different tropes that you can tap into, a swinging pocket watch and a crystal and a, you know, a shiny light on a string. I have always thought of those things as props, not tools or toys, props, separate category. And they can definitely help to create what is always my intention, which is a maximally intense experience. If someone that you're working with, playing with, I tend to use the terms interchangeably, kind of how I use the terms submissive and slave interchangeably, because in my mind, there's no distinction between the two of them. But obviously, you can apply your own distinctions. When you're using props... It's perfectly normal and reasonable to do that with the intention of maximizing the intensity of what you're trying to create. And if you're working with someone, playing with someone that has pre-existing positive and useful associations with hypno-kink paraphernalia, like pocket watches or you know, staring deeply into someone's eyes, although that's hypnotic for anybody, really then you can utilize those pre-existing associations to tap into those tropes and create a really powerful context for this person to maximally enjoy themselves. A lot of hypnosubmissives have this idea that as soon as the pocket watch comes out, their brain switches off. That's obviously something that's useful to you, so you know, don't be ashamed of taking advantage of that. Obviously, being a good hypnotist involves a significant degree of utilization. And if those tropes are positive in the sense that they are conducive to maximizing the intensity of the experience that you are creating between the two of you, then absolutely utilize those. So this is a collection of objects that I don't need to travel with. And I very often don't travel with anything. Um, I've become remarkably adept at going into the local hardware store and putting $10 down for a small length of rope and a dog collar, and you can do an astonishing amount of things with just that, or even just the rope. Uh, my, my usual recommendation for rope that you're not planning on using again is something like 8mm diameter plain undyed cotton sash cord. I don't need to travel with a kit of anything, and I've become remarkably adept at sourcing local ingredients, so to speak. You can do an astonishing amount of work with 
one small piece of rope or a $5 dog collar from the pet aisle at Coles. I will produce an episode on collar selection. There's a, a huge amount of thought that I've, I've put into it and several really interesting and unique recommendations I think I could make there. It would really help some people. However, it is occasionally useful to use tools. The wonderful thing about operant conditioning or shaping, as I'm going to use from now on because it's operant conditioning is really long to say, the wonderful thing about shaping is that you can do it without any kind of props, any kind of tools required. You just make a little click noise with your fingers or click noise with your mouth and use that as your marker signal or even just the word good or good girl or something similar. That functions perfectly well as a conditioned reinforcer. But I do like to have options available to me. So I have put together a very portable training kit. In addition to this, I will often carry some rope with me wherever I go. Um, if I was traveling around Europe, I would usually just travel to a country and then buy something from a hardware store. I've become intimately familiar with the interior of German hardware stores. Not, not a lot of other stores in Germany, just hardware stores and coffee shops. But I would usually buy something simple like that, something that's bulky and, and not illegal or difficult to travel with, but then I can give it to that person as a gift, you know. But I have a small portable training kit. And very often I will get so caught up in the moment and doing what I'm doing without using any of these things that I rarely actually open it. But it's still very, very good to build something like this. I would regard it as almost a rite of passage to begin to assemble your own kit. So what I have in mind, I will put a full list of all of this in the show notes. And I'll go through it one by one. And... Uh, Describe each of them in detail. So like I said, this is going to be a bit more of a rambling episode. All of these things have huge emotional attachments for me. So let's start with something simple. Years ago, a girl who was serving me bought me a pair of flannel pajamas that had been monogrammed. And I still have them. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the box that they came in was so beautiful and it was tied with this incredible piece of satin. And so I have found so many uses for this piece of satin. It's sort of like when you buy your cat a really expensive toy and then it doesn't play with the toy but spends hours playing with the box that the toy came in. <laughs> so this piece of satin is oh, it's about an inch and a half wide. It's a closed cylinder so that it's... Um, there's no frayed edges, and it's about three meters long. It's wide enough, sort of flat as well. It's wide enough that I can use it to quickly tie someone's hands. I can also do a non-slip knot around their neck. Usually I would use something like a bowline um, with a special finishing end on it so it doesn't tighten up. Well, a bowline won't tighten, but so that it's easier to pull it out. Basically, you do a bowline, but then you finish it with a half hitch rather than passing the rope all the way through, or in this case, the silk or satin, whatever it's called, all the way through. Um, and that makes it much easier to uh, undo it all at the end. But you can use this to make a combination leash collar, uh, which has been very, very useful in the past. It's also super soft. It's black. 
So it kind of goes with every outfit. Uh, it's super soft and you can also wrap it around someone's face and eyes several times and use it as a blindfold as well. So there's that. It's tremendously flexible and I strongly encourage you, if you have the sewing skills, which everyone should have, to make something like this of your own. I don't have a pattern for you, I'm afraid, but it's about two inches wide, but it's doubled over. So I guess it would be four inches wide. And like I said, about three meters long, maybe three and a half meters long. So, you know, make something like that, turn it inside out and ta-da. Instant collar, instant leash, instant collar leash combo, instant wrist binding. I can hog tie people. It is long enough that I can loop it around my submissives wrists or ankles when they're held close together. Uh, it's It's been incredibly flexible. It's a tool with a thousand uses. All of these tools have a thousand uses. I, okay, so I was going to do a separate episode on this, but I think it's worth mentioning here. I developed this weird little thing years and years ago where I wanted to maximize the skills that I had. And so one of the things that I did was artificially restrict the number of tools that were available to me in a particular situation so that I was forced to rely on my own ingenuity and creativity. I can strongly recommend this. And the rough process that I used was basically I would pick one implement. So let's say a short flogger medium heavy and then I would see how long I could continue one continuous scene with just that implement now I got this idea from watching people and I'm not criticizing them they've got their own style and I've got mine but there was this guy in the Melbourne scene who was just renowned for having bags and bags and bags of gear and I thought there's got to be an easy way to do this. I mean, it, it required an entourage of multiple submissives just to carry these things around. And so I got the idea of basically just picking one implement and then doing as much as I possibly could through the artificial constraints of having to use only this implement. And so I remember once I flogged a girl for four and a half continuous hours on every part of her body to varying degrees of intensity with this one thing in a hotel room. And I can tell you that there's a process that kind of happens in your mind where you, you throw out a behavior that you're familiar with, like flogging the butt. And then you naturally transition to something that seems like a natural transition, like flogging the, the backs of her upper thighs. And then once you've cycled through everything you know, you probably will start to cycle through all of the things that you know again. And once you've done that once or twice, you're familiar enough with what's going on that your mind starts to relax consciously. And you begin to get these unconscious expressions of creativity where, especially considering the rhythmic um, timing of flogging someone, where you kind of drop into a state where your unconscious mind is much more able to be creative and expressive. And then you find that all of these different creative impulses come out. And I... <laughs> I remember I brought a girl to orgasm once by flogging her. This was during that flogging scene. And then taking one of the individual strands of the flogger and kind of flossing it back and forth, 
between one of her toes because her body was so sensitive by that point that any kind of sensation was enough to set her off. She'd had like a hundred plus orgasms over the previous three hours. And I just thought, man, where did that come from? Like, even, even as I was doing it, I was like, wow, that's a very creative way to use a flogger. And doing that for the four and a half hours that I was doing it, I wasn't pushing myself hard. I, I sort of stopped at the end because you know, it was very late and I was quite tired. And obviously she was quite tired too. But what I learned in that is it, it really gave me an opportunity to stretch myself within the realms of that one implement. And so you don't need many things, but it's better to have what you have and then learn to use the tools that you have well. The same principle applies in hypnokink. You know, you, you don't need to have, well, okay. One of my favorite quotes is from Bruce Lee. And I'm paraphrasing here. Well, actually, no, I'm not paraphrasing. I think this is the exact quote. He said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks one time each. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. It doesn't really matter if you have like three large duffel bags on wheels of things to hit somebody with. If you know how to use the one thing that you do have. This is why when it comes to it, mastery of everything, it's a very important element to focus on the absolute basics. Your voice, your emotion, a whole bunch of other things I could list, but you don't need fancy expensive tools to be a good hypnotist or a good dominant or a good submissive. The only exception to that, of course, is if there's a particular context attached to a certain prop, which may be expensive to buy, like... um. Like if you're doing a, a role play or something where you're a Japanese concubine, a geisha, then having a proper kimono of some description can really help to sink into that. And that may be expensive, although not, not really. It depends on what the kimono is made from. It may have some minor effect if it's made from silk, help you to slip into the scene a little better. But, you know, the closer that you can get it to the real thing, quote unquote, the real thing, the the more that that positive context will influence positively the intensity that you can create within that scene. There is a beautiful, intelligent, creative, and wonderful woman in Germany that uh, runs classes on kimono fascinating person. So it's one of those things that's obviously true, but you don't need expensive props. You don't even need props. One of the cool things about being a hypnotist is you can use your voice. You can use your hands. You can use the sound of your voice. You can use the snap of your fingers. You can use the things that you carry with you everywhere you go. Now onwards with our discussion of the actual portable training kit. So I also have a small brown leather collar. It's large enough for a person, but it's not too bulky because the actual case that I keep this portable training kit in um, <laughs> is, a, is a Sony headphones drawstring bag that came with a nice pair of headphones that someone else got and then they didn't want the bag anymore. So I was like, hey, can I have this cool looking little drawstring bag? And they were like, okay. Uh, so it, all of this lives within the little drawstring bag. 
it's a very small collar. It's large enough for a person, but it's not overly thick or heavy or unwieldy, inflexible. It has no sharp edges and it's very soft and it smells like leather. I keep it rolled up into a little circle, kind of tucked in on itself just to make it smaller and easier to transport. Now, another amazing sex toy, and again, like I'm gonna use the words toy and tool interchangeably, is a thick black permanent marker. I carry one of these in my portable training kit. This I would often use for body writing. I'm a big fan of writing things on people's skin. Uh, you can go anywhere from super degrading and humiliating to, you know, you are beautiful. Actually, one of my favorite pieces of pornography ever, which probably sounds a little bit revealing, um, was this image. And it was a beautiful girl who'd been tied up and I think it was a, it was hand-drawn. It wasn't a real person, but it was hand-drawn. And they'd had like, you are gorgeous, you are pretty, you are beautiful, kind of, you know, you are special. You are cherished, written all over them, everywhere, in uh, in red marker, which I thought was really beautiful. Uh, obviously, you can write super humiliating things on them too, and I've definitely done that. Um, but a, a thick black permanent marker, fantastic addition. It opens up so many options. One of the wonderful things about that is that so often, if you write something on somebody in a private place say, the front of their upper thigh, and then you get dressed and go out to a party and have a great night, go home together, and then they take their clothes off and they remember that it's there and it kind of just, like, jolts them back into that happy, submissive mind space. It's, it's really fun. So, thick black permanent marker. Now, I have a variety of different clickers. Uh, I always carry several with me mostly because I end up giving so many of them away. Whenever I run a class, I usually end up giving away three or four. Um, I, I was in Sweden about a year ago, absolutely beautiful country, and uh, I was in a grocery store, can't recall or even pronounce the name of it, and I was walking past the clearance section and I just thought, jackpot. For some reason, they were selling about 20 of these super cheap box clickers at like 90% off. So um, I bought about 25 of them and uh, I've just been giving them away to people ever since. So I always have several in my training kit because I often end up teaching somebody how to do this with their girlfriend and it's, it's a really nice thing for me to be able to give them a clicker like right there and then so that they can continue playing with it that night, so they can take it home with them, so that there's absolutely no impediment to them having fun together. They pass the clicker back and forth, teach each other, condition each other, fall into each other's arms. And then, you know, two hours later, you find them snuggled up on a couch in the corner of the room, just making out passionately. It's fantastic. It's a beautiful world sometimes. So I have several of these clickers that I carry with me. Uh, you'll see in the photograph that I have two of that box-style clicker. Then I have um, one of them, the sort of oval-shaped blue one, is from Karen Pryor's website. Um, it's just an ordinary-looking clicker. It was a little bit tricky for me to find clickers online. Uh, I can't recall why, but I just had a bit of difficulty finding them. A lot of pet stores don't seem to have them here in Australia. I don't really know why. 
So I tended to buy them wherever I could, which is why I jumped on all of those ones that I bought from Sweden, and I'm, I'm still using them to this day, sort of working through my stockpile. There's also a slightly more upmarket one, which has a little wristband on it, and I think that was a grand total of like $6. Uh, a box clicker is super cheap. They last, well, I've never worn one out, but that's because I give mine away so often. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly how long they last, but I've never had any problems with them. And they make a very strong, positive click sound. I'll sort of give you an example. So that's a box clicker. That's the Karen Pryor sort of gentler one. And this was the like $7 one. Again, people become very conditioned to the object, the clicker itself. When the clicker comes out, you start to see instant responses from people, arousal, eagerness, excitement, enthusiasm, as well as responding, obviously, to the sound that it makes. So I always travel with a couple of those. Um, I usually end up giving a bunch of them away at the end of each class I teach. One of the things that I really liked, I don't have one yet because they're a little pricey and I haven't had a need for something like this for a while. Yeah, but I've always wanted to get an electroshock dog collar. I know exactly what model I would get. I've had it bookmarked for years. Um, just never really had a huge need for one, but I really love the idea of being able to push a button on a wireless controller and not necessarily electrocute somebody, but you can make them buzz. A lot of them have like little buzz settings or it makes a noise. And I thought, well, how do I click someone if she's on the other side of the room? This was an extension of something that I came up with. It's a whole series of hand signals and visual cues. I based it off the idea that I saw it in a movie once where they had those hand signals like a SWAT team was working. I thought, how cool is that? They have the ability to communicate with each other without needing to make a noise visually. And I thought, well, if I'm at a party with a girl and she's across the room, her attention, at least one of her eyes, should always be on me. And so I came up with a whole language um, comprised of super simple hand signals, which I should really document at some point. I'll have to do another episode on that. It's a little hard to put it into audio, but I can take some photographs. Make some diagrams up, I guess. And uh, to like summon her from across the room, uh, tell her to end the conversation and go and get me a drink. Um, you know, super simple stuff like this. And the idea behind an electroshock dog collar was that I could do the whole thing with a remote. So some of the bigger clubs in Europe are like multi-level. And I, I really liked the idea that the signals from this thing had a one kilometer range or even greater. So I could summon her from across the building or you know, across the street or something like that. Now, I, if I was going to have a girl wear an electroshock dog collar, and I'd like to add the caveat that I haven't done this yet, so this is not something that I've done from personal experience. If I was going to have someone do it, I would use the very lowest setting because it, for me, it's more about notification and sending a message some sort of communication. I want her to do a task rather than necessarily punishing her, which, you know, may be different from your objectives. Obviously, you can use that to punish her or correct her or punishment her, you know, whatever you'd like to do with it. But 
If I was going to have a girl wear something like that, I would have her wear it underneath a scarf. And you can kind of wrap a scarf around it so that it covers everything like that so that you can walk around with it in public. Or if you're at a party, I would probably have her take it off of her neck and then put it on her upper thigh. Tight enough that it didn't slip down, but so that the electrodes were on the outside of her body or on the front of her thigh. So it's a signaling mechanism for summoning someone from across the room or communicating orders non-verbally, even when they may not be able to hear you. Now, I haven't bought an electroshock dog collar, but what I did buy was a sheepdog whistle. So sheepdog whistles are these odd-shaped little pieces of plastic or metal, and you can slip them into your mouth, kind of behind your lips, and then you blow through them in particular ways, and you can produce different kinds of sounds. So starts low, rising high, starts high, rising to uh, falling to low, um, you know, beeps, short sounds like one, two, three, or dashes, or, um, you know, longer sounds, or, you know, two shorts, then one long, whatever kind of encoding system you'd like to use, you can attach those sounds to particular orders. And that way, it gives you the option of communicating. Now, I didn't find this as practical as simple visual signals. So, it feels really personal, but I developed this code and I figured someone that's listening to this will benefit from doing this, from, from me describing it. And so what it was, was um, I'd make a double click mouth noise with my, my tongue to get my girl's attention. So say we were out together at the shops and she was in the vegetable section and I was in the fruit aisle and we were maybe 10, 15 meters away from each other. So I would make a very loud kind of noise and that would be the signal for her to, if not return to me, then at least put me back in her eye line. I would start it off using it as a kind of summons. So it would be a return to me. But then I realized it was much more practical to simply have it be a figure out where I am and then put me in your eyeline so that I can then use the visual signals to give you other instructions. You'd be surprised how well that sound carries across a distance, particularly if you have a very strong tongue. So that's one way of communicating auditorily. Now, a sheepdog whistle was an extension of this idea. I never really put it into practice. I used it a few times when I was outside with someone, but the idea kind of popped into my head from wanting to be able to communicate with a girl across a room at a nightclub. And then I ended up switching to the visual signals instead. So hand signals at about just above shoulder height. Um, and I'll describe all of that in a different episode. So I have a small sheepdog whistle in my training kit. It's the blue item that looks like a little half crescent. What I also have... So, <laughs> there was this girl, and she was amazing. Just amazing. I must have told the story of how I met this girl to... God, everybody by now. And one day, for my birthday... She knows how much I love Teslas. So she came to me on the morning of my birthday and she said, I bought you a Tesla. And I thought, 
Well, first of all, I really hope not, because I don't think either of us can afford it. And then she pulled out the box that she had behind herself. She showed it to me, and it was this slim little object, and I thought, hang on, that's about the same size as a set of car keys would be. And so inside this box was an electric cigarette lighter, entirely uh, electronic, so no removable batteries, has a little built-in battery pack. And as soon as I flicked it open and pushed the button, I was in love. With the gift, I was already in love with the girl for years. But I've never actually used it on someone, and I've never needed to. But it makes the most incredibly threatening sound. And I've held that up against someone's ear, you know, a few inches away, once or twice, and, and used that as a kind of implied punishment. I knew this one girl who was a very talented masochist, and she was very capable of disassociating. She used to, I guess I now recognize it as more of a bratty streak, and I've never really liked that resistant side of somebody. Um, but she had this ability to disassociate. And, and she would, such a childish, stupid, immature thing. I didn't really like her, to be honest. But she would walk around at parties, you know, flaunting it and showing it off and trying to ensnare new guys into falling for her trick. And her trick was basically to bait somebody into doing something kinky with her and then just not respond because, well, a lot of inner conflict, I imagine. It made her a really unsatisfying person to spend time with, to be honest, both sexually and conversationally. But the one thing that she couldn't consciously disassociate herself from was electricity. So one day, she did this trick on a guy who brought out a cattle prod and knew exactly how to use it, and uh, the whole room just stopped to listen to her scream. It was beautiful. So, I have a small little electric cigarette lighter. I've never had to use it to light a cigarette, because I don't smoke, I never have, and I never will. But a surprisingly large number of women in kink smoke, and so I have used it for that. It's intended purpose rather than its pervertible purpose. But it's wonderful as a kind of implied threat. It's small and beautiful and heavy, and I can only imagine it would be absolutely shockingly painful to do to somebody. But obviously, all the usual safety precautions around electricity and the heart, as in don't put electricity anywhere near the heart. If you don't know what you're doing and haven't been quite seriously trained by someone who is a professional and knows exactly what they're doing, I would steer very far away from any kind of electricity with somebody. But I've never actually applied it to somebody's skin. I've never needed to. The threat's been enough. Just a little nudge in the right direction. Now, on the opposite end of that scale, I needed to add a vibrator to my kit for the targeted application of pleasure. Um, I was absolutely transfixed by... I can't recall the name of them now. They used to sell them in this amazing um, sex toy store in Melbourne, but they were 
little necklaces. And it was about the thickness of a pencil, but made from stainless steel or gold, rose gold. And it was an incredibly, incredibly powerful vibrator, a bullet-style vibrator, which kind of vibrated at a very specific point. And the goal was that you would strip down at a party and wear one of these things on a chain around your neck as a kind of you know, statement. I always thought that was beautiful. I love that marriage of form and function. The Swiss and the Swedes have also done amazing things with women's vibrators, just really pushing the boundaries there. The Japanese have also done really amazing things with women's vibrators, but in a completely different direction. So I needed a small bullet-style vibrator that I could carry with me, and I ended up settling on this one. It's the NU, the letter N and the letter U, Sensuelle, S-E-N-S-U-E-L-L-E. I've never had any problems with it. I had a couple of um, Love Ends toys. Must have gotten a bad batch because I've never had positive results with any of the three or four, I think, that I ended up buying. Very disappointed in their quality control. But this, bought it, used it, fantastic, love it, highly recommend it. Um, the main thing is that it's completely waterproof. So the vibrating section is completely waterproof. So you can insert it inside somebody and use it as a kind of remote control vibrator. Um, never had any issues with the signal. Always seems to get great reception. Issue we had with the Love Ends toys was um, it would just keep dropping out randomly, and it, which is just incredibly sexually frustrating and not in a fun way either. So um, always been really happy with this. You can insert it inside somebody. You can hold it against their clit. You can have them wear it inside of them while you're out with friends. You can leave it on for hours and you can just push a button and you know make sure you get her attention. It also functions as a short range kind of summoning device for her. You can, uh, if you're at a party, you can switch it on and then just switch it off again. Um, and that's the signal that she gets to, you know, attend to you or come back to you or come find you wherever you might be. Just be aware that the range on that is not super long, which is always one of the attractions of the electroshock dog collar, those things. Ugh, brilliant. But some of the more advanced models have a range of like three and a half kilometers line of sight. So yeah, very cool. So I always carry that. It comes in its own little drawstring bag, which I don't think actually came with it. I think it was just like a random little satin drawstring bag I had lying around somewhere. And so that always stays there. It's always fully charged and it always travels with its little USB charger as well. Just so I'm always ready in case I need to go. The other thing that's important to mention here is all of these things are always ready to go at any given time. Nothing ever needs to be charged because as soon as I get home, I do whatever's needed to replenish any consumables, bring it all up to working condition, and it just sort of sits there. It's basically a sex go bag, right? Like the idea of a go bag, you grab the bag and go in an emergency. It's basically that. It's a training kit that's designed at all times to be ready to grab and just go. Now... I have a variety of different medications, um, all of which I've researched extensively, and I have not put any of them in this photograph because they are not relevant to you. But there is a variety of, of different psychoactive substances that are very useful to create desired physical or emotional states. However, one that I did include in this photograph is just no-dose tablets. So they're just caffeine tablets. Um, 
mostly because putting a can of Red Bull in this kit would take up a lot of space and I fly very often. And so getting liquids in luggage through an airport, very tricky. So little caffeine tablets. That's when I want someone to really focus, pay attention, long training sessions, or I can, you know, give them one at the start to make sure that they're really attentive, really aware. Obviously, if you're administering any kind of medication or any kind of substance that has an active effect, do understand that it's important to ask your subject in a non-scene environment, ideally, if they're already on any kind of medication, and then to know yourself what kind of interactions that might have. For example, if someone has a really weak heart and you shove half a kilogram of caffeine tablets down their throat, you know, that might not be the best idea. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying use your best judgment. You're an adult, but also be aware of some of the common interactions that different drugs can have, particularly if you're doing anything in a scene that involves administering medication, real or placebo, which draws us naturally into our next topic. I do have a couple of little fake tablets with me. I always travel with those. I have about three different types, and they were surprisingly difficult and surprisingly expensive to find. Um, There's one place called placebo-world.com that will sell them to you. The reason for that is there were heaps of them available on Amazon, but they couldn't provide any kind of evidence that they didn't contain any active ingredients of any kind. So what I wanted from this was something that was absolutely pure in its intention. I wanted to be able to give someone a pill and know with absolute certainty that it would not do anything. This is because I had previously attached this particular medication to a desired effect hypnotically and then erased that idea from their conscious memory. So I can take out a pill, force them to take it, and have the desired effect occur hypnotically. Instant unconsciousness, wild arousal, um, something that literally alters their sexual orientation for the next hour or so. Whatever the desired effect is, I wanted something that I could attach it to, a physical prop that I could attach it to. And I had to be certain to satisfy myself. <laughs> I, had to be, I had to be certain that it wouldn't do anything. And I mean nothing, right? No artificial flavors, no artificial colorings, no anything, right? And so I, I dug and I dug and I dug online and I found a few places. Some of them will sell you little ones and some of them will sell you bigger ones and some of them will sell you blue ones and green ones. Weirdly, what I also discovered was... There's this like medical movement. Uh, it's kind of an alternative health thing, and I'm not endorsing it, but it was very curious to me. Basically, there are scientific, double-blind, peer-reviewed studies that show that if someone takes a medication for a particular, some sort of illness, and they know for a fact, they absolutely 100% know that this pill is a placebo and it won't do anything, there is still a definite, strongly correlated, measurable increase in positive desired outcomes. 
And so a number of people have basically gone, well, if someone wants to take a sugar tablet, even though they know that it won't work, there are a lot of evidence-based studies that show that it actually can work, even if the person taking it knows that it's not an actual tablet. I don't understand how that works, but those places are usually your best source for tablets that look really cool, but absolutely 100% don't do anything. Now, the ones I have are specific placebo tablets. They were much more expensive than the thing that I'm going to recommend to you as an alternative. That was because it was very, very important to me that I do not introduce absolutely any kind of chemical into someone's body under any circumstances without knowing exactly what it is and every possible ramification. But I am me and you are you. And the common alternative to this is a sugar pill. These are much easier to find because they contain sugar. And so you can basically just buy a bunch of these in various colors, various shapes and sizes from different places online. I'll put some links in the notes to this episode. But that was recommended to me by someone. And I, I really wanted to go with that, but they had sugar in them. And they had a bunch of artificial chemicals and sweeteners and, and flavorings. And I remember reading something about how some of those artificial colorings can cause like really strong allergic reactions in people. And I didn't want to have to break the scene and be like, hey, so I'm going to shove this like huge red pill down your throat in a second. Are you allergic to, um, reading off my list here, you know, thingamajig and whatsamabob and you know, red food dye number 26, 23, and 47. And she's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, you know, if you don't know that you aren't allergic to those things, I wanted to err on the side of caution. So uh, I don't think it's likely that a sugar pill can give someone a heart attack, but I insisted on like absolute purity and the complete elimination of that as a possibility. So the ones I have, I think are literally like, what have we got here? I don't think they have anything in them, actually. Hmm. Anyway, I bought them. I know exactly what's in them. And the fact that there's literally no active ingredients in them reassures me. No substances that could interact with someone in any way at all. Means that I can take three of them and then put them in a little dish next to a glass of water, hypnotize someone into having a particular response to this, and then give them that to facilitate the response occurring. So there's a couple of little placebo tablets in there, and there's a few different types in that little jar. Um, just in case. The other thing I always carry with me is some kind of small positive mechanism for engaging reinforcement. So I have... I got these when I was in Sweden, I think. No, pos no that's right. I was in the UK. Um... They're from a place called Flying Tiger, which they sell like, I don't know. It's like an off-brand Ikea almost. It was like really, really awesome Swedish inspired modern things. Um, but yeah. And so I bought several packets of what are basically like little tiny, tiny, tiny Skittles, but they're strawberry flavored and absolutely delicious. Um, I'm trying to think if someone doesn't know what a Skittle is. Like a tick, oh. I'm going to say like a tic-tac, but they might not know what a tic-tac is either. (laughs) 
So um, I don't know if Tic Tacs are international. They probably are. Um, think a tiny mint lolly about four or five millimeters across. That's like a little a little sphere, right? And the ones that I have found that work the best as conditioned reinforcers are the ones that have an inherently good flavor. I don't like the taste of mint myself, and so I could use mint Tic Tacs. They have a very strong effect. I do carry a packet with me usually because there's this awesome thing where if you have a mint Tic Tac, or several, and you let the mint kind of rub off in your mouth, and then you eat a girl out, it feels incredible for her. 100% recommend. So I usually travel with one a pack of mint Tic Tacs, but I personally hate the flavor of mint. At least not, not the flower, obviously, or the herb, but just the chemical synthesized version of it. So these little strawberry flavored pills, they have a very satisfying crunch when you bite into them. They're also really, really small and they last forever. Tic Tacs are sort of semi-permeable to the water in the air. So if you open them, they'll go off after a while. They are super cheap though. I use those as reinforcers, not necessarily as reinforcers in the technical definition of a reinforcer, but more in the sense that, you know, here is a prop that indicates to you that you have done a good job. It is a measurable, definite, observable sign that you have succeeded in doing the thing that I have just clicked you for. Um, the cool one, the cool thing about these is they taste amazing and they last forever because they've got a little hard shell on them. So find something similar, ideally something that your subject or partner really likes. I used to use Skittles. You can buy them in little fun packs that have about 10 Skittles in them. I had some difficulty with them once because they kind of melted on me. They got a little too warm and just kind of melted into a blob. Um, there's also a lot of sugar in Skittles size-wise, and they have a lot of artificial colorings and flavorings, and I was a little concerned about some of the interactions potentially there. I'm not one of those people that's obsessive compulsive about the things that they eat, but when it comes to the things that I put into my submissive or my partner, I'm, I take no risks. And you should take whatever risks you feel comfortable with, but I prefer not to take the potential of unknown interactions. So Skittles have lots of artificial flavorings and colorings. They're also really chewy and they take a little time to sort of chew and, and swallow. I did not find that ideal. I wanted something that was so small they could literally snap it in half with their teeth, enjoy the flavor, and then swallow it and be moving on with the session, you know, a second or two later. After a while of doing this, the your approval and praise becomes the conditioned reinforcer anyway. So, but... Don't underestimate the power of a prop used well. If a pocket watch has your girl just drooling instantly, don't be ashamed to just use that to access that pre-existing context. You don't necessarily have to do it forever, but chances are it's a pretty fun thing for the two of you to do together. So enjoy that. Now that's a list of everything in this portable training kit. The one other thing that I would travel with is lengths of rope, but I would usually buy those whenever I arrived wherever I was going, or if I was on a long multi-country trip, I would buy some at the start of that trip and just carry it with me. 
The cool thing about it is I don't get attached to the rope that I've used because I didn't pay hundreds of dollars for it. It doesn't have to be carefully maintained. It's not something that somebody handcrafted on top of a mountain from the sacred bamboo leaves of the juju tree. It is just rope. And obviously, if you have a big collection of super expensive, amazing rope, cool. But I travel a lot, and this is optimized for taking up the minimum amount of space while being as maximally effective as possible. So I use that little piece of cotton, the uh, little piece of silk, if I need to. If I'm going to tie somebody up, or I want the possibility of tying someone up, I will go to the local hardware store. I will buy a couple of 10 meter lengths of cotton sash cord, eight millimeter cotton sash cord in plain white or undyed cotton. And then I will leave one of those lengths at it. So I usually buy three 10 meter lengths and then I would cut the one of the 10 meter lengths into two five meter lengths. And then I would cut, so one of them I would cut into four lengths, one of them I would cut in half and one of them I would leave as a 10 meter length. And that in the past has given me more than enough flexibility. Um, and most of the time in the past, I didn't even need the longer 10 meter length. So I would usually get 20 meters of, so of cotton sash cord, cut one of it into four smaller sections, cut one of them in half, and then that's more than enough for my, my needs. And the overall price for something like this is probably about 10 euros maybe. And it's so cheap that I can give it away to them if I need to, or I can leave it behind where I can toss it in the bin, but I've never actually tossed rope in the bin. I've always given it to someone as a gift, either for their collection or as a reminder and the beginning of their own collection in rope. So that's a pretty exhaustive description of the contents of my portable training kit. Oh, there's one more thing. So what I will do is no matter where I am in the world, I will always have access to any written material that I need, like templates or outlines, or um, you'll notice in the resources folder, there are lots of resources on operant conditioning, including instructions on things like the, the, um, the training game as a good example here. So wherever I am in the world, I can go to a computer and go to a particular website and access that thing, usually from the original source or from my own archives. But I will also, so this is a very German thing to do. Someone German taught me this years ago. And it is, I will print off paper copies of these things, right? So I will have an A4 printed page of the induction that we'll be using that night or the training game PDF printout. Pretty much all of these are the exact same ones. I'm trying to think if there's any differences, but I can't think of any. They're all just the ones that are in the resources folder. Those are the ones that I actually use myself. And so I'll print off at least one, but sometimes two copies of those, fold them up and then slip them in the training kit as well. Just so that I have them there as a paper reference, it's really distracting to need to pull out your phone and like access something on a shared file drive, scroll down and be like, oh yes, it's, that's the thing, you know. Uh, it's much easier to have it on paper there with you. And you can mark it up, you can scribble on the back of it, you can write someone a love letter on it. But having a paper copy of any critical knowledge that you will need for your session, so your printed session outline, for example, 
If you need to change that, you can just flip it over and then write in pen on the blank side. It gives you a little notepad you can use. I always travel with a pen in my pocket anyway, but it's not formally part of the training kit. Um, mostly because when I reach into it into the dark, in, a, in a dark room and I'm reaching into it to pull out what I need, I can do it all by feel. And so I only have one pen-shaped object in there, uh, and that's the permanent marker. But I wanted all of it to be as accessible as possible. So that's an exhaustive list of everything in there, and I will put all of this in the show notes so you can just go to the resources folder on the website, get the actual list. I'll put links to where you can pick up most of this stuff. Um, but pretty much everything you can source from anywhere. Like you can buy a box clicker from Amazon. I would suggest not buying one from Amazon and supporting a local box clicker retailer. Maybe, maybe if there's a locally owned pet store, go there instead and see if they've got anything in stock or they can source you something. I always strongly endorse buying local over buying global, but that's just me. Um, and there's nothing else on this list or in this small collection that is super expensive. Probably the most expensive thing was, well, I'm guessing it was the electric lighter, but I don't know how much that cost. I've never looked that up. But getting a good quality bullet vibrator, I think that was about $50 Australian, so maybe 30 euros. Um, none of this is designed to be prohibitively expensive and all of it's optional. You can do the work that you need to do. There I go again, work, play. You can do the things that you need to do with just your voice and your touch and the skills that you already have. But it never hurts to have a couple of fun little props. And I like to carry this around with me, travel with this. And it's always fascinating for someone who's being trained by me when you pull out a clicker or you pull out this length of, of, you know, silk sash and do something cool with it. It really adds to the experience to have a couple of really simple props. These are not props in the sense of like costumes or like weaponry or anything like that. They're props in the sense that they tap into underlying positive contexts that already exist in the person, or they are a simple functional tool to be used to create those positive contexts in which the intensity of your experience with them can be maximized. So this was intended to be a 10-minute episode, <laughs> a literal dot point list of some fun things that I wanted to share for a really long time. I've been wanting to do this for ages, and thank you for staying with me the entire time. It's been really fun to think about all the things that I've done with this and all the things that I will do in the future. What I want for you is for you to come up with your own little kit. Have a small little bag you can keep your toys in, but not sex toys in the traditional sense. A specific training kit. Now, there's enough room in this bag for a flogger, a small flogger, if I wanted to put one in. I used to have one in there, I think, but I don't really travel with that anymore. You can usually make one out of a piece of rope if you just cut it into several lengths and kind of, you know, bind it together by hand. That's another thing you can do with cheap cotton sash cord. You know, make it into a pretty serviceable flogger. So fill it with what you use, with the versions of these tools and items that you yourself own that have strong positive attachments for you. Things that you will use specifically in a training context. I can't really think of anything to add to this because if I could, I would already have added it to this. But this is already more than I would need to create just phenomenal experiences for someone. 
So take this idea, build your own, have fun with it, enjoy. And thank you for listening. This has been a really fun one for me.